You know, some things uh, in life can seem innocent enough, harmless enough, and yet they can be very dangerous. Take myself as an example. <laughs> seem innocent enough. Uh, but as I'm sure most of you knew, it was Wednesday that I came out of isolation having tested positive with COVID. And I was pretty much asymptomatic. Had it not been for this sort of inner prompting on a Wednesday to take an LFT, I wouldn't have known. And I would have just happily gone around my business you know, spreading COVID to everyone that I met. Now, thankfully, uh, in God's grace and mercy, the the effects of COVID, they seem to be getting less and less. The risks seem to be getting less and less. And yet it still impacts our lives, doesn't it? And whether that's with sickness or whether that's being stuck in isolation. And yet from our passage here this evening, we see something that is more subtle and is infinitely more deadly than walking around asymptomatically with COVID. And it's to do with, with our worship. Now, there is a dangerous type of worship. It's asymptomatic. From the outside, everything looks fine, and yet what's being worked out is death. That's what we saw in our passage. And so what is this dangerous worship? How do we avoid this dangerous worship? Those are some of the questions that we're going to consider as we work through this passage this evening. So we're in Acts. Book of Acts, Luke-Acts is a two-volume work. You may remember in Luke chapter 1, it sort of sets out the purpose of writing this. The purpose of writing this is to assure us, to let us know that God's purposes have truly been fulfilled. Jesus is the fulfillment. This is it. All God's promises and purposes find their fulfillment in Jesus. Acts comes as a second volume, and that focuses on the continuing work of Jesus Christ, now as the resurrected, as the exalted Messiah, and this work that is being done in and through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Last time we were in Acts, which I think was probably before uh, Christmas now, we were considering the threats that were coming at the church, these threats that are coming from the outside, from the religious leaders who are persecuting. This evening, in this passage, we look at the threats that are coming from within the church. And this passage here presents us with two paths. One path that has its origin in God. And then it leads to life and to transformation. This other path has its origin in Satan. And it leads to deceit. And it leads to death. And there are two ways to worship. There is a worship that comes from life. And there is a worship that leads to death. So there's two anchor points that we're going to consider as we go through this passage, and that's genuine grace, this worship that comes from life, and then this counterfeit change, which is a worship that leads to death. So if you click us on, Seth, great. Genuine grace, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. This is kind of a summary statement. It's an introduction to what we're reading here at the end of chapter four. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Now just notice, it doesn't say that the people got rid of their possessions. 
This isn't about them coming to live in some sort of commune where a condition of entry is you need to sell everything uh, and then come in. There is nothing particularly remarkable in living in a situation where you don't possess anything and you share what you have. Now, it might be remarkable entering into that. It might be a big sacrifice if you're selling your possessions to come into that way of living. But an actual lifestyle, a situation where you don't possess anything and you share what you have isn't actually that remarkable. If you think about it, if you stay at B&B, it would be absurd if you claimed that kettle there is mine for the taking. You, you know it's not yours. It's something that's shared. There's nothing particularly remarkable about living in a situation where you don't possess anything and you share everything. But something remarkable is happening in this passage. Something deeper is going on. See, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. These people, they still have possessions. Their possessions. What's changed, though, is the attitude towards those possessions. So rather than saying, this thing here is mine, and it's mine to use as I want, it's saying, this is what I have, and this is how I can serve others with what I have. And what we see here in the early church is not this imposed change in living arrangements. What we see here in the church is this change in this transformation of heart. The way that people view their possessions. And how does this transformation come about? Well, verse 33 tells us with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was powerfully at work in them all. Now, just a few verses previously, uh, in chapter 4, verses 29 to 31, the believers gather together, they pray, they pray that God would empower them to speak the word of God with boldness. We see that prayer being answered here uh, in these verses. And notice the result. So testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and then because of this, God's grace is powerfully at work in people's lives. The result of this, verse 34, there was no needy person among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them. They brought their money from the cells. They put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Then we get this example of Barnabas. He sells a field he owns. He brings the money and he puts it at the apostles' feet. So as needs in the community arise, people look at what they possess, what they, what they have, and they say, how can I use this to serve this group? How can I use my possessions to serve others? And we see through Acts people doing that in various different ways. People opening up their homes as meeting places. That's a way of using their possessions to serve others. Here in this particular context, as people look at the needs, they say, well, these possessions that I have, I can sell them. Uh, and with the money that I get, I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet. It's going to be distributed to those who are in need. That's what we see in the example here of Barnabas. He takes a field that he owns. He looks at that field. How can I use this to serve the needs of others? I'm going to sell it. I give the proceeds to the apostles. And what we see here is really the ideal in Deuteronomy 15 uh, being lived out. It's there on the screen if you want to have a a little look rather than flicking back. And in Deuteronomy 15, God speaks to the Israelites and he says, look, there, there doesn't need to be any poor among you. 
because I am so going to abundantly bless you in the land that you come into. There's going to be more than enough. And then God says to his people, so don't be tight-fisted. Have an open hand towards your brothers, to your fellow Israelites, those who are in need. And in Deuteronomy, God declares that poverty, it comes about not because any lack in the divine giving. I'm going to give an abundance. I'm going to bless you. Poverty is going to come about because of a lack in human sharing. And so for the ideal in Deuteronomy to be fulfilled, the change that needs to occur is a change in the human heart. Which is what we see happening here in the book of Acts. And remember again to Luke's purpose in writing. Luke in saying that this is it. Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of all God's plans and purposes and promises. They find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This is the thing that works. This is what we've been waiting for. And it's here and it's now. And we see this happening in Acts. This passage is declaring this is it. This is what happens when the gospel impacts people's lives. That what is idealized then becomes realized. This is the work of Jesus Christ. That it's with great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. This is how the transformation is coming about. Because God's grace is powerfully at work and we see that the working of God's grace, it is tied to this proclamation of the gospel. You just notice at the beginning of verse 3, is with great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The focus here on the gospel proclamation is on the resurrection of Christ. Now this doesn't mean the apostles didn't speak on the atoning death of Christ, because we know they did. And actually you can't really talk about the resurrection without talking about the cross. But perhaps a question for us as we read through this passage, as we think of, of some of the things that are brought out of it, is do we speak enough, do we give enough time, enough attention to the resurrection of Jesus? Or is it kind of a, an appendix in our understanding of the gospel? The gospel isn't forgiveness and fortitude, it's not you know, hold on till you get to heaven. The gospel is about the new life that is given to us in Jesus Christ. If anyone is a new, if anyone is in Christ, then it's new creation. Perhaps one of the reasons that we don't always see the change and the transformation that we hope for is that our view, our vision of the gospel has become reduced. It's a great power of the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. To that momentous occasion where life flooded into the death and the deadness of that tomb. And that death-defeating power of Jesus Christ is given to us by the Spirit. The The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is going to give life to our mortal bodies. And as we wait for that day, that day of resurrection, where we share physically in that resurrection of Jesus Christ, yet that same spirit is given to us now. And the life, the power of God floods, not into the the deadness of a tomb, but even into the deadness of our hearts, affecting this change and this transformation. 
And as we see here in Acts, this proclamation that this is it, that life is given in Christ. This power, this transformative power that God's promises his purposes find their fulfillment in Christ. That God's grace in Christ is not merely as a means of escaping condemnation, it's the means by which we experience this ongoing change. That God has given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. See, this is the worship that comes from life. We're not worshipping to attain life. Life is given. Life is given in all its fullness in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can worship. Because of that, we can be changed. We can be transformed. Because of what, have all, what has already been done for us, what has been given to us, what the Spirit imparts, that life of Christ. See, this is genuine grace. It's what we read of here. This worship that comes from life. And yet as we go into chapter 5, we see the start warning of a different type of worship. Of this counterfeit change. This worship that leads to death. If you click on for me, please, sir. So chapter 5, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. So like Barnabas, they have some property, they sell it. However, their actions, it doesn't flow out of a transformed heart. Not a, not a heart that's transformed by the Spirit, but a heart that is, is filled by Satan. You see in verses 2 and 3, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter, given this supernatural insight by the Spirit, knows exactly what's happened, and he says to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you've kept for yourself some of the money you received from the Lamb. Now, verse 4 makes it clear to us that they weren't under any obligation to sell that property. They're not forced into this communal way of living. It's not an obligation that's placed on them to sell their property. The obligation is not placed on them to give all of the proceeds. Verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And their sin wasn't that they failed to attain a certain level of devotion. It was a sin of deceit. They're not being called out because they've got a B on an exam. They're being called out because they've fraudulently changed those results to be an A star. And have gone around parading that in front of everyone else. They're following the way of Satan, the father of lies. Satan has filled your heart. And yet Ananias is the one who is held responsible for this. It's not that Satan made him do it. Look at verse 4. What made you think of doing such a thing? Or literally, why is it that you, you Ananias, why did you lay this plan? Why, why did you plant this in your heart? And so when Ananias heard about this, he fell down and died. And we get this great fear that sees all that happens. Three hours later, verse 7, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price 
you and Ananias got for the land. This is an opportunity now for her to confess. She continues with the deceit. Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the apostles' feet, you know, that was the place where people brought their offerings. Look at verse 2. Ananias, he brings his offering. He lays it at the apostles' feet. And it's a deceptive offering. He lays it at the apostles' feet. And here, Sapphira falls down dead at the feet of the apostle Peter. And that place of false worship becomes the place of judgment. So how do we feel as we read this passage? Now, as we, we went through it at the beginning, like how do you feel as you go through this passage? Do you feel uncomfortable? No, I do. And then the next question for us to ask is, well, why do we feel uncomfortable? Is it because God doesn't fit nicely into the box into which we would like to contain him? Now, we want a bit more slack. We want a bit more leeway and leniency. And if that's the case, what does that reveal about our own hearts? Now, it may well be that we're a lot less committed to God's glorious purpose of holiness than he is. And this is a difficult passage. It's not meant to be easy. It's not meant to make us feel comfortable. Even the first here is the early church. Great fear, verse 11 sees the whole church and all who heard about these events. But fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, I don't play with fire. I don't sit at home just striking matches and throwing them about the house because I fear getting burnt. Now, it's not a paralyzing fear. It's a life-giving fear. There is life-giving fear, and this comes as a life-giving fear. These Events here are recorded for us as a warning, but also as a mercy. And they come as a, mer- uh, as a warning that church is not a game. We're not playing uh, worship. We, we don't mock God. We reap what we sow. That we need to get serious with God. And we need to repent of wrong attitudes. And as I, as I work through this passage, as I've looked at that and reflected on my heart, now how easy it is, especially when I'm in a position like this, when I'm up at the front a lot of the time, to just be so focused on how I come across. Whether that's music, whether that's preaching, whether that's praying. It's so easy for my mind to drift towards, now how am I coming across? Am I presenting myself well? Now, and I publicly confess that. Oh, publicly repent and keep repenting of that. If now, if you want to pray for me and pray for me in my interviews, pray for me in ministry, a big prayer is just pray that I would have an increased desire, but not just a desire, but to see Christ increase and see myself decrease. Because this isn't a game that we're playing. Now, for us to seek to take the glory to ourselves, it's a deadly path 
that we head down. We need to be serious. This passage comes to us as a warning. We need to ask ourselves, where is our heart at at any given point? It's not just a one-off thing, but constantly. We're coming back. Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Our eyes off ourselves, getting our eyes on Christ, doing it for his glory. This passage comes to us as a warning. But it also comes to us as a mercy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaks about the judgment of death that has fallen on some in the church and says, and this is so that those people are not condemned at the final judgment. Though there are times where God brings death into the immediate as an act of mercy. Now, we don't know whether Ananias and Sapphira were true believers or not. We can't really figure that out from the text. And I think for us to start going down that rabbit hole, the effect of it is we kind of sidestep the spotlight work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. What it is that God is trying to convict us and reveal to us, we suddenly push that aside as we start asking these questions. What about them? Now, we can't know for certain whether Ananias and Sapphira were, were, were true believers. But what we do know is that God always acts in accordance with who he is. Everything that he does is just. All his ways are perfect. They are faultless. And God, in his mercy, he is rooting out. He's, he's removing a deadly cancer. And whether or not that was in the lives of Ananias and Sapphira, we don't know. But certainly, bringing out that deadly cancer in the life of the church. That here, God exposes what is unseen. Now, rarely in life do we see the full consequences of our actions. And often we fail to see a deadly path that we're heading down. This deadly path here that we see in this, this counterfeit change. Counterfeit change results in death. And that may not be an immediate death, as in the case in this passage, but ultimately that's where it's heading. And God enables us to see. In this passage, he shows us where where that way of life ultimately leads. In order that we don't head down that way, in order that we we follow the the true worship, the worship that, that comes from the life that is in him, we need to be serious about gospel transformation. So as we see this way of death, now how do we avoid it? Well, it comes back to what we looked at, at that tail end of chapter 4. The alternative to counterfeit change is genuine grace, is worship that comes from life. That comes from God's grace in Jesus Christ. That we experience through the gospel. We're not to take it, you know, fake it till you make it approach. We're never going to make it that way. We come as we are. We come to Christ in all our poverty, in all our weakness, in all our wretchedness, seeking his power to change and transform us. The Psalm 51 says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken Spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. God does not despise that. He doesn't turn us away when we come in our wretchedness and in our brokenness, appealing 
for mercy and the transforming work of Christ in our lives. So let's come humbly, but let's come boldly to that throne of grace as we pray now. Father, as we read a passage like this, that sometimes we can fail to see your great and unfathomable mercy towards us. Lord, so often we don't see the consequences of our sin, the horror of our sin. Lord, of where it is that we are running and where we are heading aside from Christ. And we thank you that you in your compassion and your mercy, Lord, you show us that. And as hard as it is to see and, and to receive, or that you love us too much to remain silent. But you don't just expect us to work out that change and transformation within ourselves, because we could never do that. No, that just sends us further away. We thank you that you in your mercy and your compassion have sent your own son, Jesus Christ, who lived and not only lived, who died, who not only died, but rose, who not only rose, but ascended and has poured out the spirit and now lives and intercedes for us. Father, we thank you for the new life that we have in Christ. And we pray, first, we pray for forgiveness and for all the times where we have, have sought to just fake it till we make it to put on a pretense, to put on a show. Or at the end of the day, there is one view that counts and that it is your view. Lord, it is your evaluation of us. Give us such eyes to see that. As we considered this morning, as you as the great and the just judge, that we would live our lives in the light of that. Lord, but that we would also live uh, in the empowerment of the new life that you give us in Christ through the Spirit, that as we come before you, as we come before you confessing our weakness, Lord, our our wretchedness, our poverty, Lord, in accordance with your mercy in Christ, your purposes, your promises, please be quick to answer us. Lord, to continue that work of life, changing, transforming, a deepening grace, Lord, in our lives. So that indeed, though we may not yet be the people that we, we hope to be, that we have called to be in Christ, although we can thank you that we are not the people that we once were, that each day we may be seeking more of your grace, Lord, pressing on to that day, that when Jesus returns, that we, uh, as your church, would indeed be found in him, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through him. Lord, to your praise and to your glory. Amen.